0: If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, I want us to launch into our message today. And we are talking about what does it mean to live out our faith in a world, in a culture, that challenges your faith. And we've established all along that culture, if it ever was, is definitely no longer and not now a friend to our faith. It's not here to help prop up your faith. All of the societal supports are gone if there ever was some some that was truly there. Now, some of us want to think back to the good old days, but I would challenge you to think that even in the good old days, it's not what you remember. Because culture has never, ever intended to be on the side of faith. And so we're going to dive into this, and what does it mean to live when you're out of place with your faith? And for many of us, you feel out of place even though you're in your place. I mean, this may be the town that you grew up in, or the state that you grew up in, or you grew up in a Christian family, and yet, even with all the familiarity that that brings, you still feel like there's something else going on in the world and no longer... Does it seem to make sense when you look at your faith? So we've been working our way through an ancient letter by a man named Peter. And he was a guy that followed Jesus around for three years. And those three years that he spent with Jesus radically changed his life. Not just his inner life, not just his relationships, but the direction and the trajectory of his life. And he had to go through this understanding of, he had to get beyond his religion to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, and then he becomes a leader in the church. In fact, he's one of the guys that right at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, he hands off the the mission, he hands off the task to Peter and his accomplices, and I'm sure that up in heaven, there was a bunch of angels going, this doesn't seem like a wise move, Jesus. You're going to give the whole thing over to them? Yes. What's the backup plan? There's not one. You're going to entrust them with everything. All of eternity is now going to weigh in the balance. And Jesus says, yes. And so Peter becomes this leader in the church, despite what any of us would have thought about if we had been witnesses at the time. And he goes about proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And when he does that, churches begin to bring up. And Christians have moved away from Jerusalem, and they're now out in these other regions, and Peter wants to write to them and wants to encourage them. And so he reaches out to him through this letter. And so if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter. And we're going to be in chapter 4 today. But before we get there, I need to give you what our topic is about today. Because Peter's going to take us to a place that's not politically correct. It's not culturally sensitive. Most of us don't like to talk about this. And it's one word. It's... Judgment. Peter's going to take us and talk about the reality of the judgment. Now, if nothing else you learned this week, you can learn something that I've learned. Judgment is not spelled with an E in the middle. Because some of you are already thinking about writing me an email correcting my slide. Surprise! Now, I know what everybody's doing. You're now looking up on your phone. Judgment, how's it spelled? You'll take this away. Just take this away as something you learned today. But it's not popular to talk about judgment, is it? Because the idea that someone, something at the end of our life is actually going to hold our life in some kind of balance doesn't make anybody in culture feel comfortable. And for most of us in Christians... We've got such a strange relationship with the idea of judgment. You may believe in it, but we still have this very scared approach to it that I'm going to lay down some teaching on judgment before we get into Peter's words. Because what we're going to find when we get to Peter's words is the idea of judgment, eh, let me say it this way, the reality of judgment should be a motivator that compels us To live a certain way, and that way is with the living hope that Peter has been talking about the whole time. Judgment, or the problem with judgment, is that it's hard for us to imagine a loving God that's actually going to judge at the end. It's hard to hold both of those realities together. Because either God is fully loving, and He's just going to look the other way, ultimately, with sin or he's a wrathful God, and he's a judging God, and we should all just be quaking in our boots at the fact that he's going to judge us one day. But you're going to find that Peter doesn't approach it that way, because Peter has a different understanding of judgment. Let me start with some scriptures, and you can just write these down. These aren't going to be on the screen, but write these down if you want the references. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, did you hear how the writer of Hebrews starts that sentence? It's been a that man should die once, and then face the judgment. Now, we don't have any problem with the first part of the sentence do we we all understand that there's a timeline out there there's an expiration date for us and we understand death so did peter's readers understand death it's the second part this idea that there's going to be a judgment beyond that that makes us uncomfortable and where we what we have here is i'm going to boil down lots of philosophy into just two distinct streams There's a materialistic idea that this life is all there is. There's nothing beyond. There's there's nothing, this life isn't headed anywhere. It's just here, what we know right now, what you can see, what you can touch, what you can smell, what you can um, sense with any of your five senses that's what life is comprised of, but it's ultimately going nowhere. It's all about the experience that you have right here. That's the materialistic view. The other view is a theistic view with a sense that there's something beyond this life. And there's a sense of life is actually headed somewhere, that it's going a direction Because the finish line is not simply death, but there's something out beyond it. If the finish line is death, what that drives us to do is we've got to have a way to deal with that reality. Because that is a very depressing, despondent reality. And so many will try to medicate that reality away. And so you will find addictions, you will find distractions... You will find sensuality. You will find something. Because if this is all that there is, what you're going to do is you're going to try to live it to the fullest for whatever that means. And Peter's actually going to address and say, you tried those things. You've gone through that experiment. You've tried to medicate away this idea that your death is coming and life is headed nowhere. But if your worldview includes something beyond, then the beyond has a judgment with it. Now, even that shouldn't scare us because the second half of that scripture I read says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Because what Peter's going to affirm is that for those that are in Christ, your sin... Your judgment has already been dealt with. Your offense towards God, your rebellion towards God, that day, that decision, that season that makes you ashamed to even think about, and perhaps you've never even confessed it out loud yet, that sin, for those that are in Christ that sin has already received this judgment. It's not a day coming. It's a day that has been, and it was at the cross. That's why we don't fear judgment in the same way. And for those that follow Christ, the idea of a judgment actually brings comfort, not makes us uncomfortable. And in fact... One of my theories is that the reason that we have such a difficult time with judgment in our culture is based on the fact that we're so comfortable in our culture. Because we don't experience some of the horrific things that go on around the world. When it comes to evil and experiencing evil and being the recipient of of the evil then you long for and you hope for judgment because what you need most is you need some type of accountability and the scales be made right again and that's what peter says god does for us remember peter's readers they are under oppression and they are struggling, and what they need to hear is that there is a God that doesn't simply turn the other way, that doesn't just with a wink and a nudge look at the evil that's becoming them, that's happening to them, the suffering that's happening to them, and He simply goes, well, that would be an indifferent God, and that would be a God not worth serving. So what I would suggest is that anywhere that there is someone that's being trafficked for sex, anywhere someone's being the victim of terrorism, anywhere that a spouse is being abused, that person is hoping for judgment. Because if God is going to be good, He must also be just, and it's somewhere, somehow, justice must come in. So, Acts 17, another one for you to write down. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Peter's, that was Acts, but Peter's gonna link, just like Acts, is gonna link this idea of the resurrection and judgment together. So with that being said, I want to talk to you about. The reason why, if the resurrection has happened, then judgment will happen and why that should motivate us. I'll share this with you. God will judge, not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they've done evil, but because they've resisted to the end. The powerful lure of the open arms of a loving Messiah. That's our framework for judgment. And so with that in mind, First Peter begins this way. And we're going to walk through most of chapter 4 today. And as we walk through it, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to actually take the three paragraphs that they have. Uh, together, First paragraph. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. But for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now he's about to give us this list, this list of ways we medicate ourselves against death. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, I love this verse because it shows you how applicable Scripture is to everyone. And if there's anybody that I think has to live this out, it's our young students and college-age folks. Because you're right in that season of life where it really matters what other people are doing and whether or not you're involved, right? Did you get the invite to go and hang out with that group? And now you're hanging out with a group that they have a different set of values than you, and this is possible. This is not a group that typically goes, Well, we have great respect for your, your beliefs. This is why won't you join us in the party? Why won't you handle sexuality in the same way? Why won't you consume this? And he says, this is how some of you actually used to live. But now you know the gospel and the judgment that's coming. He talks about the judgment at the very end. Should motivate you for one thing. And so what I want you to do is we're going to talk about three things that judgment should motivate you for. Should compel you for, move you forward. And so the first one, next to that paragraph, I want you to write this. sin less the reality of the judgment of God, that you understand that your life is headed into a certain direction and that it has a purpose and has a meaning and you're not simply here to medicate away the reality of your death, that there's something beyond that. You live into that reality and you begin to take care of these bad habits, these sins that weigh you down and you begin to sin less. Peter is not suggesting that you'll be sinless, that you'll be perfect by your own power. But he does believe that following Jesus and understanding what happened to you at the cross, that that becomes a source of power that motivates you to sin less because you are preparing yourself for the coming of the King. He continues this theme, and I love how his two letters tie together. And since you've got journals that have both letters in it, I want you to turn over to Second Peter chapter three verses eleven. It's gonna be page thirty-four in the journal, page fifteen forty-one for our student Bibles. Chapter three, verse eleven says this: Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, I'm sorry, dissolved, what sort of people ought you to to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens, the new earth in which righteousness dwells. you get what he's saying? So much of what we try to live for in this world will not last into the next going be burned up. It's firewood. It's kindling. And Peter's saying don't put your hope simply on the last things, but put your hope on things that actually last. What you do in the name of the glory of God is what carries on to the next life. And he's saying you're preparing now for that new heaven and that new earth. We live as people that that what's not yet is already here, that's the, citizen, that's the kingdom that we are citizens to. Remember, in this world, we're out of place because we're still living the traditions and the, the culture of the new world to which we are actually citizens of. And so it's a motivator, it's a driver, this idea that we can sin less. He goes on, First Peter Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, and more than everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter wants us to sin less. And he's also going to call us to live a certain way in this one. As we learn to sin less, we're called to serve more. And what Peter is doing is he's calling us into a life of service. This is the life that glorifies God that lives beyond. As we learn what it means to serve. And he highlights two things. One is prayer. The very first part of that verse, he talks about prayer. Peter seems to take prayer very seriously. And as people that are under some kind of struggle, that are under some kind of suffering, we need to be about people of prayer. And then he ties that right into this idea of serving each other and reaching out to each other. And he says, people that believe that a judgment is coming are motivated to serve and care for one another he talks about this idea that what we do is we bring hospitality to each other that we share in this life together verse 9 show hospitality to one another without grumbling As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And then he goes on and says, As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. He kind of gives us two categories. There's some with the gift to speak. And I think he's talking about preaching and teaching. But then he pairs right with that and elevates it as much or even more, this idea of serving one another. And he would say that that's a gift that we all share in. And, and as people that are, know that a judgment coming, we come together every single time, and we encourage and we share one with one another. Now, this is why you being a part of a church and worshiping on a regular basis together is so critical. Because you're called to it. See, here, here's what I know. I know several times people will show up here and they think, I, I really don't have a role. I, I, I don't have a place. Does, does, is there anything important about be, being here? I am telling you that it is vital that you're here. Not because we get so excited when we have to find another seat for a big crowd, but because you play a role in serving and bringing hospitality and ministering to somebody else. Every Sunday, we have a prayer together as the worship team. And we're praying about the service. And we pray about the many different ways that each of you are going to interact with somebody else. And there's somebody here today that you are going to bring the grace of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus to in a very unique way. It's going to be in a hug. It's going to be in a conversation. It's going to be in a comment. It's going to be in a word of encouragement. It's going to be as you sing and worship together and you add your voice and the power of worship begins God to work through that. It's going to be in a classroom. It may be in the parking lot. I don't know where, but, but if you're here today, then you receive God's grace, but also there is somebody that you are here to give God's grace to. There is no substitute for that. No amount of awesome preaching, no incredible worship experience overcomes what your ministry is every time you make it here. This is why we felt so disjointed when we shut down for COVID. This is why being together in God's presence is so critical. And this is exactly what Peter's saying as people that know that the judgment's coming, you serve one another you be hospital to one another because you're making an eternal difference in the world. Last thing's this. Let's go to the very end. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice. And be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and the God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We're called to sin less, serve more. By this paragraph, I want you to write: We're called to suffer well. Peter tells us, do not be surprised that you suffer. You follow one that suffered. The idea of following Jesus is not that we can follow him so far and somehow avoid the cross. That we avoid his crucifixion. That our lives, because we're going to live them with intention somehow, we're going to end up and it's going to be comfortable when Christ suffered. Peter says, don't be surprised but would you rather suffer for doing evil or would you rather suffer in the name for Jesus? says this is your choice. That's back to the materialistic versus theistic worldview. How you see the end determines how you play the game. If you were assured of victory, that's the victory we talked about last week. If you're assured of that victory, then you live with a different perspective. yes. It's difficult, and some of you I know are in a season of struggle, and I am not making light of that. But what Peter would tell you if he were here, he would say, suffer well in that, knowing that you have a God that does not stand at a distance, does not forget about you in your suffering. He's not turned his back on you, yet he is walking with you in the midst of this. There is a reason that Psalm 23 says, is shared at so many funerals. It's almost, sometimes you think, well, that's kind of cliche because you've heard it so many times. But when it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. You have a God that is there in the middle, not one that stays at a distance. We are called to sin less. Serve more and suffer well. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. And he's also, he's one of the most brilliant minds, and he's also a follower of Jesus. And he goes and he debates and he talks about reasons to believe. And on tour once, he met a Jewish woman while he was in Eastern Europe. And they became uh, connected. And she was doing some research about her parents and other relatives that had experienced the Nazi regime and the Holocaust and the internment camps. And so they went together on a guided tour to view a particular Holocaust exhibit. At this exhibit, you walk through a replica of the gate of Auschwitz. And just beyond the gate was an exhibit that, Highlighted and identified the horrible medical experiments that were done. And the woman says, What do you say about this? What does your God say about this? And Lennox was thought for a moment and he wondered what he could say to a woman that had lost so many family members in such a horrific way, such an evil way and he said I would not dare insult you or your parents by giving you a trite and easy answer but I would offer you up one thing and he goes I don't think it's the answer but it opens a door towards the answer He says, you know that I am a Christian, and that means that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that he was God incarnate, he came into our world as Savior, and I know that this may be difficult to accept, but nevertheless, just think about this question. If he really was God, then what was he doing up on that cross? And Lennox went on to share his belief about the cross and the place where God begins to meet all of our human heartbreak, rather than remaining distance, re- remote, and uninvolved, He comes close. And he says, he said this to her at the very end. He said, one day He will judge everything in absolute fairness and mercy. The woman that he was with, teared up. She got very, very quiet. She said, why has no one ever told me about my Messiah before? There was something about the reality of a God that was willing to step into suffering with her and someday would judge and make all things right again. Even though her family had experienced some of the worst evil we could possibly imagine and beyond our imaginations, there was something about that reality. said, so that's a Jesus I need to know about. There is a judgment coming. See, I, it, it would be unfair of me as your preacher to somehow pave over that fact. Or to ignore that fact. There is a judgment coming. But once again, for the believer, the judgment has already happened and it took place on a hillside in Judea in the, AD, in the year A.D. 33. Because that's why it says the people have got to judge first. Now the opportunity is with the God that steps into history with us to handle our sin problem and walk with us in our suffering. He will make it right because he is a righteous God on that day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's not easy or fun to talk about your judgment. I pray that it would be a place, a source for us to... Propel us into your arms. Father, may we sin less because of it, because that represents our old life, not our new life, our new hope, and the kingdom to which we now belong. Father, I pray that you would empower this group here to serve more, that we would see opportunity in each other to serve and to minister, that the world would see that around us and be drawn that and father i pray that you would help anyone today who's in a season of suffering to suffer well not because you're looking the other direction but because you're in the middle of it with us willing to go all the way to a cross for us jesus you are king May we live our lives with an expectation of standing before you one day. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.